All right, how we doing, Hume Lake? Cool, got a Bible with you? Go ahead and grab that right now. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. Hey, as we kick off tonight, I have a question for you. Who here, whether it is your own or your parents or your brothers or you just get to use it sometimes, who here drives a car? Okay, a lot of you, a lot of you. Uh, for, those of you shh, for those of you that do not drive a car, um, who here has a bedroom that they sleep in every night? Okay, that should be, I hope, lots of you. Um, so I have a question, and we're going to begin tonight's sermon with a poll, uh, a sort of survey of sorts. Um, whether it is your car, or if you don't have a car, if it's your bedroom, um, who here would fall in the camp of, I tend to keep my bedroom and or my car extraordinarily clean? Raise your hands high in the air. Be proud of that. All right, now you know who you can resent and judge. I know nothing about that. Like, 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 you keep it clean and that's an amazing thing. Now, let me ask the second question. Who here, like me, just, they don't even, they don't know how it happens. It's just a dumpster fire. It's a hot mess. Okay, my people, my people, I understand. So, so listen to me. Here's how this works. For, for me, with my, my bedroom at home, I, I share that, obviously, with my wife. Um, and she likes things clean, so that stays pretty clean. But I have this domain of my car where she never really gets in it unless we're going on a date night. And that's a separate issue. But, 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 but we, meaning when she does, i got to get it all cleaned. But what happens to me is that I go through the week um, and my car slowly but surely becomes a mess. And it never happens on purpose. Like what happens usually is I'm kind of going through the day and I'll be eating some Chick-fil-A and I'm done with the wrapper and I know what I should do is bring it out of the car, but I don't bring it out of the car. What do I do? I crumple it up and I throw it where? Back seat. And then I'm driving, I'm driving down the town and it's a hot day and so on a hot day there's nothing better in the world than a McDonald's Diet Coke. And I go get myself a McDonald's Diet Coke because something about McDonald's, mm, so good. So I go get one, I finish it and I should take it out of the car, but what do I do? I don't throw it out of the car, I throw it in the... Back seat. You're getting onto the pattern here. I sometimes eat on the road because sometimes I'm just traveling or I have something else going on or I get handed a receipt or a piece of paper. And I'm not a slob. I'm not just going to leave it in the front seat. I throw it in the back seat. But then here's what starts to happen. There comes a time from moment to moment where I'm just kind of getting out of my car and I'm going and I'm looking and then I just happen to peek into my back seat. And what I notice is that my back seat is a complete and total disaster. And here's the funny thing about my back seat being a total disaster. I never set out for that to be the case. I didn't say like I'm gonna buy this car and drive it around and make sure the back seat is all messy. It didn't happen all at once. It's not like I took a trash can and just emptied it out in the back seat. See, here's what I'm convinced of and you can write this down. You can write this down that you can wander into sin, but you cannot wander out of it. You can wander into all sorts of sinful, destructive, unholy, and unhealthy practices, but the only people who get out of it are the people who recognize what's going on and intentionally repent, turn, and walk out of their sin. You can wander into sin, but you can't wander out of it. And tonight, I want you to see a vivid story here in the book of Daniel that's going to describe what happens in so many of our lives as it just becomes filled with more and more choices, more and more decisions that turn our life into a disaster. Daniel chapter 4 verse 1 says these words, King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and people of every language who live on the earth. So uh, real, real quick, look at me. Um, tonight, the entire chapter we're going to read is a letter written by King Nebuchadnezzar. 
So all the other ones have been just kind of stories. This is an actual letter that was written and presumably sent to his entire empire. He is writing an epistle, a letter for us tonight. And I want you to see what it says. May you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. So, so here's what tonight's story is. Tonight's story is a letter from King Nebuchadnezzar, the king, the emperor over the entire known world at the time, and he has something to say. And so what I want us to actually think about tonight is this, that we get a sneak peek into the private mail of, of the most powerful individual in the world. And tonight the question we're going to wrestle with is this, what does the most powerful person in the world want us to know about God? What does the most powerful person in the world want us to know about God? And that's an interesting way to look at this. Like this is the most powerful, the most famous, the most rich, the most influential person in the world. And he wants us to know something tonight. Here's how he goes on. He continues to write, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. I was lying in bed and the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. Do you recognize this? This is the same type of thing that happened last night, right? He has a dream. He wants people to come in and interpret the dream. Verse 7. So the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, and I told them the dream. <laughs> Remember last time, he's like, you got to tell me the dream. And they're like, we can't do it. He's like, you all got to die. It's like he learned that that's not a very good strategy to kill all the people who need to help you. But we proceed. I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence, and I told him the dream. He is called Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, for the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I said, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream. Interpret it for me. So this is the setup for the story. The, the king is having another one of these dreams. And why is the king having these dreams? The king is having these dreams because God is putting this dream in his mind. Remember, God is sovereign, even over your dreams, even over your life, everything in your life. Nothing's random. Nothing happens accidentally. Our God is in heaven, and he does what he pleases. He does whatever he wants. And he puts this dream into Nebuchadnezzar's mind. And here's the story. I'm not going to read the entire chapter for you, but I want you to know the Cliff Notes version of it. He is going to have a dream, and then Daniel's going to come forth, and he's going to interpret that dream. And then the dream is actually going to play out in real life. So three parts. He's going to tell him the dream. Daniel's going to interpret the dream, and then the dream's actually going to play out in his life. And let me just give you a summary of the dream. Because, again, this is one of those parts of Scripture that if you're not reading carefully or you've not read it before, it's just kind of hard to get your head around. So here's what the dream begins with. The dream begins with Nebuchadnezzar, and he's asleep. Here's a little picture we're going to show you here. Nebuchadnezzar there, that's, that's our guy. It's an actual photo of him. Um, and, 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 and he's asleep, and, and there's a tree. It says this tree is massive. We can't fit a massive tree with the kind of dimensions there. But it's this massive tree. Think this is like an enormous tree that everyone can see. And they love the shade of it. And they love the beauty of it. And they love the fruit of it. And it's this amazing tree that is filled with splendor. That's the tree that's rising above in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. But then the dream takes from a dream into a nightmare. It turns from this pleasant dream into this unbelievable nightmare for Nebuchadnezzar. See, here's what happens. Next photo here, you'll see here, you have Nebuchadnezzar, and that tree gets cut down, you'll see in the background. The tree is sliced down, that grand, glorious, beautiful tree, it's cut down. And then it says it's bound with iron at the bottom, which is so that it can never grow back. It can never start to sprout again. It is dead, not just for now, 
but forever. And then what he sees is an individual who is chewing grass. It's like a human being who's actually become like an animal. It's a human being who has descended to the level of the beasts. This is the dream that Nebuchadnezzar explains to Daniel. He's horrified by it. There's a tree and it's glorious. It gets sliced down by this angel, this messenger from heaven. It gets bound at its roots and this individual becomes an animal. And here's what happens in verse 24. Verse 24, if you have your Bible, I want you to see how Daniel is going to interpret this dream. Here's what he says to the king. He says, this is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree of the Most High has issued against the Lord, the king. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched in the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass, which many interpreters would take to mean seven years, seven times and seasons, seven years will pass until you acknowledge that the most high is sovereign. If you have a pen or a pencil or a highlighter, underline, circle, highlight that. The most high is sovereign over all kingdoms on the earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. In other words, God is in heaven, he is sovereign, he does whatever he pleases. You see the sovereignty of God woven through even this dream and its interpretation. And then verse 26 the command, that, that the command to leave the stump of the tree with the roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you once you acknowledge that heaven rules. So in other words, Daniel looks at the king and says, here's what I need you to know about this dream. That mighty, grand, spectacular, glorious tree, mighty king, that is you. You are the great king of the earth. You are the great splendor. You are the one everyone looks up to. Your kingdom, your majesty, your glory, they go all throughout the earth. And Nebuchadnezzar's feeling good at this point. He goes, that's me, that's awesome. But then Daniel says, here's what I need you to know. You're gonna be sliced down. You're gonna be cut down to nothing. You're gonna be exiled. You saw that tree cut down, that's you. You saw that man eating grass and becoming like one of the beasts, that's you. So in other words, what Daniel says to him is you are the person who's going to be cut down. You are the person who's going to become like an animal. God is going to bring you low. God is going to humble you. God is going to do this, and he's going to do this until Nebuchadnezzar does one thing. And that one thing is listed right here in verse 26. God is going to cut him down. The stump of the tree will be at its roots. Means that, and in verse 26, your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Remember what we said at the very beginning, as a Christian living in exile, our hope is not in the things of this world, it's not in our strength, it is in heaven. It is in the return of the king, the resurrection of the body, and the restoration of all things. And what God is saying here to Nebuchadnezzar is, if you want to be in right relationship with me, it begins with you acknowledging that heaven rules, that God is in charge, that God is the king, and he gets to tell you how the world operates. So here's one of the principles you need to know. Because God created the world, God gets to set the rules for the world. Because God created the world, he gets to set the rules for the world. And I want you to hear me clearly on this. Because God created you, he gets to set the rules for your life. You didn't create you, so you don't get to set the rules for you. It's like this. I got a buddy named Jacob. And when I go to Jacob's house, Jacob's house is one of those houses. Actually, raise your hand if this is true of your house. Jacob's house is one of those houses where when you go in, you take your shoes off. No one's allowed to wear shoes. Anyone's house like that? Okay. My house is not. I got young children. It's a disaster. It wouldn't matter shoes or no shoes, okay? But, but, but Jacob's house, it's like shoes go off. So I want you to imagine this day. I go in, go up to Jacob's door, knock, knock, knock. He opens up the door. I'm like, hey, buddy, great to see you. I start to walk into his kitchen with my shoes on. 
And he goes, hey, Brian, you mind taking your shoes off? And I go, Jacob, Jacob, I like having my shoes on. He goes, yeah, 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 but like in my house, we take our shoes off. And I'm like, Jacob, what are you even talking about, man? I want to wear my shoes. I don't know about your silly little rule. It's your rule. That's not my rule. You live your life. I'll live mine. Here's what you know. That would be incredibly offensive to Jacob. In that situation, you don't even have to know Jacob or me that well to know that I am in the wrong and he's in the right. Why? Why am I in the wrong and he's in the right? Because Jacob's house, I'm in his house. And you need to know that you are living in God's house. He created it, he owns it, he gets to set the rules. And so what we often want to do is we read a thing in the Bible that tells us how we're supposed to behave, a thing in the Bible that tells us what's sin and what is righteousness, and we go, well, God, I don't really like that rule. I don't really prefer that. I actually don't think that's really in step with the modern age. We're like 21st century people, so surely we should be more advanced. We look to God and we go, God, I know it's your house and all that, but I would actually like to set the rules rather than you. And this is exactly what God is telling to Nebuchadnezzar. You will never be in right relationship with God as long as you think you get to set the rules. And for far too many of you, you spent your entire life saying this, I will do what the Bible says as long as I already agree with it. And if you say, I will do what the Bible says as long as I already agree with it, you don't actually trust God, you trust you. And you're not actually obeying God, you're obeying you. See, the burden here is that they would be the type of person that recognizes that Nebuchadnezzar would say that heaven rules and not him. Here's how it goes on in verse 27. It says, therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Daniel looks at Nebuchadnezzar and says, please listen to me. He says, renounce your sins by doing what is right and renounce your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be then that your prosperity will continue. So here's what he says. Listen, you are never gonna be in right relationship with God. Things are never gonna be right in your life until you recognize that it's God's house, you're living in God's house, therefore he makes the rules. So what do you need to do if you've been walking in sin? What do you need to do if tonight you're like me in the back seat of my car and everything's just kind of a mess and everything's piling up in there? There is one thing that I'm here tonight to tell you to do and that is to renounce your sins, to turn from your sins. I do not make anyone in this room. I am not here to call you to make peace with your sin. Tonight I am here to tell you to make war with your sin, to renounce it, to turn from it, to run from it, to repent from it. Why? So that, there me, so that your prosperity will continue. In other words, what Daniel is saying is, listen, you need to turn from your sin. Not only because that's the honoring thing to God, not only because he sets the rules, but because that's the only way to have a life that actually prospers. And I want you to know the same thing is true. The only way you will have a life filled with joy and peace and purpose and prosperity the way God defines it is by turning from your sin. Because here's what you need to know about your sin. Your sin never gives to you. Your sin only takes from you. Your sin never gives to you. It only takes from you. But like some of you have a friend, and, and, and honestly, like I need you guys to be like grown-ups here. Do not point and do not giggle. This person may be in the room. Some of you have a friend who always takes. They are a taker. They always want stuff from you. They always want help from you. They always want time from you. They always want help with homework. They always want you to help them out. But when you're in need, they never actually help you in any way. And you know friends like that. You know people in your life who are just takers, takers, takers. They're always taking from you. They never give anything to you. That's your sin. Your sin takes and takes and takes, but it never gives anything to you. 
And if you want to live a life of peace where you're not anxious all the time, if you want to live a life of joy where you're not just discouraged and down all the time, if you want to live a life of purpose where you actually know why you're awake in the morning and alive today to go, you need to turn from your sin because it never gives to you. It always takes. You know what it takes from you? You can write these three things down. It takes from you your peace. Sin takes from you your peace. And you know the reason I know sin takes from you your peace? Because if you are walking in some kind of habitual, unrepentant sin, some little hidden part of your life, you are constantly worried and afraid that someone's going to find out. You are terrified that somebody is going to peer around the corner, take a picture at the wrong time. They're going to see something on your phone. They're going to hear someone else say something about you. Some of you are living a double life, and it is so stressful. You are so anxious that someone's going to find out about it. You know the reason I know this? It's because if you went home this weekend and you were like getting ready to go on Sunday morning, maybe to church, or you were going, going off somewhere on Monday night and you were hanging out with some friends and you went in, you took a shower, you got dressed and you came out to the kitchen and your mom and dad were standing there and your mom and dad are holding your cell phone and they look at you and they say, honey, before you go tonight, we saw your cell phone on the counter, it was open and so we go ahead and we look through it and there are some things we need to talk about. Now, if you are living a double life where you are hiding something from your parents, hiding something from everyone else, your anxiety level goes through the roof. If you've been texting things you shouldn't text, looking at websites you shouldn't look at, if you've been doing things you shouldn't have done, you are overwhelmed with anxiety. But if you know you have no secrets, if you know you're not hiding and harboring any sin or concealing any wickedness in your life, your question actually becomes, what did you find? Maybe it was the weird selfie I took, right? Like that's all you're worried about. Sin robs from you. It takes from you your peace. You know what else it takes from you? It takes from you your joy. It takes from you your joy. Um, I have done this for years and years and years with thousands of high school students at my church, at Hume Lake, at other camps. And here's just what I've learned along the way. Um, sin is always seems fun in the moment. It never brings joy in the long run. Sin always feels good in the moment. So I'm just not going to deny that there's like some carnal and initial pleasure that you get from sin. I just want you to know I've never met someone who walks in sort of habitual, unrepentant sin who's actually joyful in the long run. But like, you know the way I see sin? Sin is a lot like the McGriddle at McDonald's. Let me explain. Um, about once a year, I make the mistake of getting the McGriddle at McDonald's. Now, McGriddle, if you don't know, is like the culinary invention of scientists in the lab. It's peak humanity. We're not going anywhere up from there. Uh, what they've done is they have managed to take the bun and insert syrup into it. It's like two pancakes and everything's together, and you bite into the McGriddle, and I don't know what heaven's going to be like, but close? Like, like, like that, that, that's where it is. I, I bite into it, and about once a year, I'm like, yes, this is great, and, and then I eat the McGriddle, and about 30 minutes later, I am contemplating whether or not living any longer even makes sense. Like, it is just like wrecking me on the inside. It is destroying my insides. It was like a moment of pleasure, and then like two days of like, sorry, I gotta be right next to the bathroom, right? Why is that the case? That's the case because it tastes good in the moment, but it never actually lasts. That's what sin does to you. Whatever your sin of choice is, it is not bringing joy into your life. It may be bringing like quick pleasure, but it robs from you your joy in the long run. So here's what I want to tell you on the authority of the word of God. I want to tell you this with entire confidence. Your sin, if you are a Christian, cannot and will not rob from you your salvation. Your salvation is secure in Jesus. 
Literally, Jesus saved you, past, present, and future. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 says, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. John, Jesus says in the Gospel of John that everyone who is saved, he holds them in his hand, and the Father holds them in his hand. You are secure in Jesus, but write this down. Your sin will not cost you your salvation. Your sin will cost you your joy. Your sin will cost you your joy. There's a verse I've seen on the back of a lot of your shirts this week that says, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Do you notice that David doesn't say restore? Yeah, there we go. But, but listen, listen. Notice, notice that David in that verse in Psalm 51 doesn't say restore unto me my salvation. His salvation's secure in Jesus. His salvation's secure in Yahweh. He doesn't say restore unto me my salvation. He says restore unto me the joy of my salvation because when you sin, you do not lose your salvation, but you will lose your joy. And so that's the invitation. Sin takes away our joy from us. It takes away our peace. You know the final thing sin takes away from us? It takes away our ability to have intimacy and closeness with others. And you know why it does that? Because if you are hiding something, if you are concealing something, if you are covering something, by definition you have created a facade. And intimacy always requires us to actually be real with the person in front of us. So if you are walking in some kind of sin that you are hiding, you are constantly in a sense of putting up this facade to make sure you never accidentally let it slip that you are walking in sin. And if you are walking in sin, it will rob from you the intimacy of relationships. If you feel like, man, I'm not close to my friends. It feels like all my friends are fake. We don't have a real relationship. I would examine your heart to say, is there any sin in here that's causing me to put up a facade where I can't actually be real with them? See, again, sin is not a giver. It gives you nothing. It takes from you. And that's why Daniel says, renounce your sins, and then your prosperity will continue. Verse 28, this all happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking around on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, is not this the great Babylon I have built, the royal residence of my mighty power for the glory of my majesty? (sighs) Nebuchadnezzar misses it. But God keeps speaking directly to Nebuchadnezzar, and he keeps missing it. And you know what happens to some of you? God keeps speaking to you. He has you in church. He has parents who are Christians. He has youth pastors and mentors and friends and all sorts of people around you, and you keep missing it. And he stands here a year after this dream, and he goes, look at my mighty power. Look at my strength. Look at how awesome I am. He looks at God and goes, thank you very much for your input. Thank you very much for your advice. But do you see how awesome I am? And then he makes the fatal mistake that all of us make in sin. It is the mistake that says, I've got this. Thank you very much. Here's what sin says. It's three words. Sin says this, I know better. Nebuchadnezzar looks at God and goes, thank you very much, but I know better. Sin is the arrogance that says, God, I know what you have to say about my life, and I know what you have to say about my behavior, and I know what you have to say about this, but I know better. When we sin, you know what you're like? You're like my three-year-old son. My three-year-old son, when he goes into the bathtub, um, today I got a picture of all three of them in there, and they were having fun today, and my wife has given them a bath. Um, but this little tick that my son picked up years ago, and he just, we're still trying to break this in him, um, is that what he loves to do when he's playing in the bath, we have these cups where they pour water on their heads, and we clean them, and all that kind of stuff. Well, from time to time, he'll take a big old cup of water, bring it up to his lips, and take a deep swig. Yeah, it's disgusting. And so we look at him, and we're like, son! Do not do that. And he just sometimes is like, okay. And then sometimes he'll be like, okay. And then we turn around and he takes another and just gives us that look of what you're going to do about it. And we go, stop drinking the bathwater. And why do I tell my son to stop drinking the bathwater? Is it because I hate my son? 
No, it's because I love him. And he's a knucklehead. But he's my knucklehead and I want the best for him. And somewhere in his knucklehead three-year-old brain, he's going, Dad doesn't know. This is the good stuff right here. This is, this is life. This is living. This is the fountain of youth. Right? In his mind, he thinks he knows better. And here's the tragedy. A lot of you do that with God. So do you know that God says in the New Testament to not let any old and wholesome talk come out of your mouth? But some of you use vulgar language and foul language and racist language and sexist language and you say whatever you want and you don't actually think it's a big deal before a holy God. Because you know better, don't you? God says let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. No vulgarity, no foul language, no sexually charged, disgusting, gross things. And yet some of you are like, thank you very much, God, but I know better. And then you even have the gall to say, it's not about the words, it's about my heart. And God says, no, no, I care about your heart, but I care about the words too. You think you know better. Listen, some of you are having sex with your boyfriend, with your girlfriend, and you think it's no big deal because your sister does it and your friends do it and everyone else around you does it. And you're like, it's not a big deal. Like, we love each other. We're totally going to get married. It's like totally a thing. Like, we're in love. Other people don't understand. My pastor doesn't understand. My parents don't understand. It's no big deal. I don't see why God says it's a big deal. And here's what you're essentially saying to God. God, I know you say marriage is reserved for one man, one woman in a lifelong covenant together, but God, I know better. I know better. And some of you look at the God of heaven and go, I know this thing of sex you created. I know it's your house, but I'm going to set the rules because I know better. But like some of you, when it comes to substances, like the scriptures say, be totally sober-minded. Like don't get drunk with wine. Don't get drunk in alcohol. And yet some of you are like, it's just alcohol, just beer. Everyone does it. It's not a big deal. It's just a few drinks. Adults do it. Why can't I do it? Why can't I smoke weed? It grows out of the ground. God made it. It must be great. Like this is what you do. This is seriously. I've heard these words. And I want you to hear me on this. This is you looking at the God of the universe and saying, thank you very much for your ideas, God, but I actually know better. I've got this thing all on my own. You are like my son drinking bathwater. You think you know better. Or, or do you know that the scriptures actually command you not to gossip? Whoa. You're like, whoa, whoa, that's, that's a thing Christians do. Well, we don't call it gossip. We call it prayer requests, right? We're like, hey, can I share a prayer request about my friend, right? And we do that. And we think that's fine. We think that's good. We're like, oh, yeah, let me just gossip a little bit. That's not really a big deal. You know what the scriptures say? The scriptures call that wickedness. The scriptures call it sin. And some of you have the arrogance to look at God and say, no, no, I know what you said about that, but I got this juicy little bit, and I just got to toss it out to my friends. Like, I want you to hear me on this. Every time you walk in sin, every time you walk in an unrepentant, sorry, uh, kind of sin, where you think you've got this thing all on your own, where you think you know better, where you think you can do this because you're special or you're different or God doesn't really understand or how could the Bible really apply to me? Every time you do that, you are looking at God with the same attitude Nebuchadnezzar had, where he says, look at my glory, look at my majesty, look how smart I am, look how intelligent I am. I've got this and I know better. Verse 31, even as the words were on his lips, Remember, the words are like, look at my glory, look at my majesty, I know better, I'm so great. Here's what happens. A voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from your people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like an ox. Seven times or seven years will pass until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from the people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. Do you see the descent that happens? 
This is King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, king of the mightiest empire the world has ever seen. He is filled with glory and splendor. He has people and servants who surround him in his palace. He is seated upon a throne. He eats the finest food. He drinks the finest wine. Everything in his life is glorious and great. And you know what God says? If you are gonna know better, if you're gonna set the rules for your life, if you are not gonna acknowledge that I am in charge and I call the shots here, I am going to show you where that path is leading you. And he goes on a descent. And he descends down to the dew and down to the grass and down to the ground. It says his fingernails grow out. He starts to become like a wild beast. And it takes him from this grand and glorious and dignified person and brings him lower and lower and lower. And here's what you need to know about your sin. Your sin has never once elevated you in life. It has only lowered you. It has only lowered you to below the type of person God has called you to be. That God has called you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And some of you have heard that. And yet over time, sometimes without even planning on doing so, you've just gone lower and lower and lower and you've descended. And this picture, this picture of Nebuchadnezzar descending because of his sin is the picture I need you to hold in your mind tonight. Because here's what I know. Some of you are Christians. I mean, you're followers of Jesus. And you still sin you repent of it. You confess it. When you stumble into pornography, when you swear, when you gossip, when you do that thing, when you lie to your parents, when you do it, you acknowledge it before God and you turn from it. And you know what the glorious news about that is? Man, God receives you. Because even in your stumbling, your salvation is secure, your sin is forgiven, and you are not like Nebuchadnezzar. But I need to speak to others of you. Because others of you think this is all a game. You think it's no big deal. You think God is just kind of cool with whatever. You think God is just kind of up in heaven going, whatever you want to do, you do. It's no big deal to me. And here's what I have to warn you. The descent of Nebuchadnezzar is your future. And listen, I need to tell you some things tonight that you need to hear. Because if I'm any good as a pastor, if I'm any good as a pastor, I have to say this to you. It's like this. Um, like we got our, our three and five-year-old, uh, Grace and Noah. Uh, about three weeks ago, we fulfilled a dream that they had wanted for years. And, and, and in their room, we took out their beds and we put in bunk beds. Um, yeah, so exciting. It was like the best day of their lives. And so they have bunk beds. And obviously, if you have a bunk bed as a kid, one has to do the lower bed and one does the upper bed. So Grace, our oldest, got the, the, the upper bed. But my son, every night, decides to climb up to the top of the upper bed because he just kind of wants to be up there. He likes the feeling of being up there, but he knows he's got to go down. But from time to time in the first few weeks here as we've had those bunk beds, I've had to speak to my son because here's what you don't know about little boys. Little boys have no brains. Uh, I already told you, he was drinking bath water. And little boys see a bunk bed and they think to themselves, jumping off the top of this might be fun. But you know, and I know, him jumping off the top of a bunk bed won't be fun. It will be a hospital visit. Like, you know that. I know that. And so here's the deal. I would be the worst dad in the world if I didn't look at my son and say, son, do we jump off the top? And he looks at me and he goes, no. And then we do that same exercise the next night. Son, do we jump off the top? No. I'd be the worst dad in the world if I didn't warn him that if he jumped off the top, he was going to break his leg. And I would be the worst pastor in the world if I did not warn you that if you choose to do your whole life rejecting God, saying, forget you, God, I'm doing my own thing. I'm going my way, own way. I want nothing to do with your rule over my life. God will allow you to descend in the same way Nebuchadnezzar did. And yet the fate for you is far much worse. It is far worse than you eating grass or being like an animal. What the scriptures say, the destiny for the person who rejects God and wants nothing to do with him is that God will allow that individual to step into a Christless eternity in the place the Bible calls hell. I need you to know hell isn't a joke. 
It's not something I came up with. It's not something I use to make people sad. It's not something I use to control people. It's something the Bible clearly teaches that Jesus himself teaches clearly and abundantly on. Like I need you to know this. Hell is real. Hell is not a joke. Hell is punishment for sin. In other words, the individual who goes, forget you, God, I'm doing my own thing. God says my wrath will be upon you. And hell is eternal separation from God. The person who goes, forget you, God, I'm doing my own thing, and goes in your own direction, God will let you go there for all of eternity. Like, I need you to know hell is real. Hell is not a joke. Hell is separation from God. It is punishment for sin. But here is the most important thing I need everyone in this room to know about hell. Eyes on me right now. Hell is not somewhere anyone has to go. It is not somewhere you have to go. No matter what you've done or where you've been or what's gone on in your life, no matter what you did last month or last week or last night at camp, no matter what is going on in your life, hell is not somewhere anywhere has to go. And I want you to see why that's the case in the very next verse here. Look what Nebuchadnezzar does, and this is my plea. This is why I'm here this week. This is why I took a week away from my families, my babies, to be here that you would see this. Verse 34, at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. You know what Nebuchadnezzar does? He is on his descent. He is on his way down. He is on his way to the depths, and he recognizes that he needs to turn his eyes toward heaven. And in turning his eyes toward heaven, recognizing the sovereignty and the rule and the reign and the authority of God, it says that his sanity was restored. You know why I came here this week? Because there's some of you who have spent your whole life running from God. You've just been in a full sprint this way, saying, forget you, God, get away from me. But you know what the brilliant, beautiful thing about our God is? If you would stop tonight and plant your foot in the ground and turn around, you'll recognize that God never stopped chasing after you. He never has, and he never will. He will chase you down until your last breath on this earth. He loves you. He sees you. And he does not want anyone to perish. Here's what it says in this book of 2 Peter that we've been looking at. 1 Peter, 2 Peter. It says in 2 Peter 3, 9 that he is patient with you. God is patient with you. God has been waiting. God has been waiting for some of you to make that decision where you're finally turned from your sin, set your eyes toward heaven, and run to him. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You know what God wants out of you? If you've been walking in your sin, doing your own thing, living your own way, saying forget you, God, you know what God wants from you? He doesn't want just remorse where you feel sad or bad about it. He wants repentance. Remorse or just feeling bad, that's just a feeling inside of us. Repentance is an entirely different thing. Repentance is what I said earlier where you're going this way and then you plant your foot in the ground, you turn and you run back to God. Repentance is not feeling bad Repentance is renouncing your sin, turning from it, and running to the God whose arms are open wide for you. You know what repentance is? In the New Testament, that word repentance is the word metanoia. And metanoia means a change of mind. You actually change your mind about the world. If you're taking notes, write this down about repentance. Here's the seven words of repentance. The seven words of repentance are very simply this. God is right and I am wrong. Or you can reverse it. I am wrong and God is right. Repentance is you coming to the recognition, I've been doing things my own way, but I'm wrong and God's right. I've been using foul language because I think it's no big deal. I'm wrong, God is right. I've been sleeping with my girlfriend and I know that's sin. I'm wrong, God is right. I've been lying to my parents and God says to not do that and I'm wrong and God is right. That's the seven words of repentance. The invitation for you to repent isn't just to feel bad. 
You can have tears, you can have brokenness, many people experience it, that's a good, right, and holy thing. But unless that leads to you actually acknowledging what Nebuchadnezzar recognizes here, he looks toward heaven and recognizes, I was wrong and God is right. Verse 34, it goes on this way. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the most high, I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does what he pleases. He does what he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? You recognize what he does immediately. He goes his own way. He's doing his own thing. He's going into his own sin. He's in this descent. And then he turns his eyes toward heaven. And then he still knows he has to deal with his sin. And what's the first thing he does right here in this, this little paragraph we just read? He starts to worship God. He starts to talk about how worthy and wonderful and beautiful and amazing God is. And you go, isn't worship a song? It includes singing. But worship is us orienting our life and our, our entire existence toward God, saying God is great and I am not. God is big and I am small. God is everything, I am nothing. That is worship. Worship is turning our hearts and attention and lives toward God. And here's what you need to know. If you are stuck in some kind of sin, a besetting sin in your life, that has its claws in you. I need you to know that you do not fight sin with willpower, you fight sin with worship. You do not fight your sin, that addiction, that thing inside of you with willpower, you fight it with worship. What is willpower? Willpower is white knuckling it, it's clenching your fists so hard until the blood comes out and they're white and you're just going, oh, I'm gonna try really hard not to do that anymore. And here's what I want you to know, that never ever works in the long run. You don't fight sin with your willpower. You fight sin with worship. So let me speak to you right now if you're walking in this particular sin. For some of you, the sin you are walking in privately, maybe you've never told anyone, is the sin of online pornography. That is true for many of the men in this room. Ladies, it's true for a lot of you too. And here's what I know about online pornography. It is not the type of thing you overcome by just trying harder. Every time you try harder, you last a few days, but then you lapse back twice as hard. And if you've experienced that where you're like, I tried to get free, and I tried really hard, and I tried to do it all myself, but I couldn't. I need you to know you don't fight sin with willpower. You fight it with what? Worship. And what does fighting it with worship mean? It means that you will never be free of the sin that has its claws in you until you find something you want more than that sin. Until you find something you desire more. It's kind of like this. If, if, if someone ever says, I want to get healthy, I want to start eating healthier, you, you don't tell them to just stop eating bad stuff, Right? You don't be like, just knock it off with the pizza and the candy and the, the, the bad stuff. Just stop eating that, right? Because at some point, they got to eat. So what you do if you're trying to eat healthier is you don't just say, I'm not going to eat bad things. You actually have to replace it with something better. You have to replace it with something more nutri nutrient-dense. You have to actually replace it with something your body needs more. The same is true for your life with God. You can't just go, well, I'm stuck in pornography, and that's where I always am, and I try my best, and I'm going to try to get rid of it. No, no, you have to replace it. You have to channel your life into seeking after God in such a way that you want God and his holiness and his righteousness, that you want the intimacy that comes with God more than you want anything that can pop up on your phone screen. That's how you fight sin. Any lingering and besetting sin in your life, you do not fight it with willpower. You fight it with worship. You find something you want better. What's the answer to the thing that will allow you to walk away from the sin and temptation in your life? It's the simple fact that God is better. That is what Nebuchadnezzar recognizes. 
God is better, and he turns to worship God. And then verse 36, here's how our story closes. At the same time, my sanity was restored. My honor and splendor were returned to me. Remember that? If you want to prosper, if you want life to actually go the way God has designed life to go, you got to turn from your sin because it doesn't give to you. It only takes. And it says, my advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the God of heaven because everything he does is right. Do you see the change in tone? Suddenly it's not I'm right and God's wrong. Suddenly it's not I get to set the rules, God doesn't. Suddenly it's not I know better and God doesn't. Everything God does is right. And his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. I asked a question to begin the sermon tonight. And the question that we were gonna look at in this epistle, this letter, this actual correspondence that was written by Nebuchadnezzar was this. What does the most powerful man in the world the most famous, the most rich, the most influential man in the world want us to know about God. And here's what it is. He says it right at the end here. He says, God is able to humble you. You know what Nebuchadnezzar wants you to know? That you only have two choices in life. Here are your two choices. Number one, you can humble yourself. And number two, God will humble you. Those are your only choices. If you are walking in sin, if you are running away from God, if your life is filled with mess and sin and wickedness and evil and secrets and brokenness and darkness, you can humble yourself or God will humble you. And I'm pleading with you tonight, I want you to humble yourself tonight. I want you to humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. Why? Because the scriptures say, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and in due season, he will raise you up. Do you want God to restore you just like he restored Nebuchadnezzar? You humble yourself before the sight of the Lord. And what does it mean for you to humble yourself in the sight of the Lord? It means that you, tonight, like literally in just a few minutes here, we're going to wrap up chapel, and you are going to go off to your cabin discussions. And it's going to be so easy for you to bounce off the walls and think about other things, or think about Kajabi, or think about anything else, but listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. If you want God to raise you up, humble yourself in this moment. And humbling yourself looks like two things. Number one is confession. Confession. Tonight in your cabins, when you go back, I want you to confess your sin. What does it mean to confess your sin? Confessing your sin just means acknowledging reality as it is. You don't have to make something up. You don't have to be a big dramatic story. You just acknowledge the sin that is existing in your life because your life always goes better when you acknowledge reality. It's like this. I'm like most men, most husbands. Um, sometimes I'll have like a runny nose. I'll be coughing. I'll have like a big fever. My wife will be like, are you sick? I'm like, I'm not sick. It's just allergies. She's like, no, you look really terrible. It's not that. I just, I got something in my eye and uh, that's why I'm kind of puffed up right now. Like, like I love to like be sick and then like pretend I'm not. But here's what you and I know. If you're sick and you're living denial of that, you're not gonna get better. You only get better once you acknowledge, I'm sick, so I'm gonna go to the doctor. I'm sick, so I'm gonna rest. I'm sick, so I'm gonna take some medicine. Acknowledging reality is always for your good. And so here's the invitation tonight. In your cabins, just acknowledge reality. That's what I'm asking you to do. You confess, you say it out loud, and can I plead with you? Um, you have not humbled yourself until it feels a little vulnerable. You have not humbled yourself until it feels a little uncomfortable. You have not humbled yourself until you're actually being honest. So can I plead with you? Young men, do not get in your cabins tonight and be like, yeah, I guess I, I, I kind of have a lust problem. Okay, what does that even mean? Here's what you need to say out loud. I'm totally hooked on pornography. I look at it every day. It's a total disaster in my life, and I need to be free. That's confession. Yeah, sometimes me and my parents don't get along. No, 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 no. 
I yell and scream and disrespect them. I lie to them all the time. I have an entire separate life from them. I am wrecking my relationship with them. It is my fault and I need to own that. That's confession. Confession is not vaguely asserting that you might be just a human like everyone else. Confession is actually humbling yourself to the point where it hurts. Number one tonight, confess. And number two, repent. Repent. You can confess until you're blue in the face, but until you repent and recognize that you are wrong and God is right, that you are going on the wrong road, but God invites you down the right road, until you confess and repent, repentance being I am wrong and God is right, until you do that, there is no healing available for you. What does the most important man in the world want you to know? This is what he wants you to know, that God will either humble you or you will humble yourself. And I'm pleading with everyone in this room to choose to humble yourself tonight. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your word. God, I pray that young men and women in this room would humble themselves. That there would be a spirit, a Holy Spirit-driven humility and confession and repentance in cabins tonight. I pray that there are some cabins that don't even get to anything else tonight. They're just, there's just, just so much brokenness in confession and repentance. I pray that there are young men and women who know they've needed to confess for years that would do that tonight. And God, I pray that your repentance would bring that joy of our salvation back. And so God, my prayer tonight is not for guilt and shame and condemnation. My prayer tonight is that Hume Lake Christian Camps would be filled with joy by the power of your spirit in the name of your son Jesus, who we pray in and all God's people said.